we got a real simple plan. One man, one mission. Georgia has won the national championship. You might think this is sports heaven. This might be college football heaven. This is ESPN's College Game Day Podcast. Now alongside Pete Thamel, here's Reese Davis. What will college football look like in five years? Or ten for that matter? What if you had a $15 collective? How would you spend the money? And which conferences are at crossroads offseason realignment is certainly a topic of discussion this is the college game day podcast for the final day of may the 31st reese davis and pete thamel with you pete great to be with you as always and i know you spent a great deal of time talking about the realignment issues the nil issues nick saban just had a, a quote which is you know everybody picked up on you know why because it's the end of may i mean it's not you know it wasn't really Uh, earth-shattering or groundbreaking. We've talked on this podcast before about either unionization or some type of a trade association to bargain on behalf of the players and and professionalize it uh, even more than it already is. As we look at this right now, there are a lot of different places to start, but let's go ahead and start there. From your conversations with coaches, administrators, athletic directors up to this point, what type of uh, I don't know if pressure is the right word, but I'll use what type of pressure is NIL raising money for collectives, staying competitive with your peers to keep players? What type of pressure do you uh, feel like that's putting on programs right now? It's the number one topic, Reese, when I talk to coaches this this offseason, the last offseason too, really. It's I'm going to this event to raise money for NIL. I'm doing this. You know, coaches in a lot of ways, calendars have become filled with fundraisers because they have felt the need to try to fill the coffers to not only recruit a roster, but I really think the initial pressure on a lot of these coaches has been to keep their current roster. Um you know, when you look at just different programs around the country, for example, Toledo is going to be the MAC favorite, right? There was a lot of pressure on Toledo to keep its top six to eight players. They got a corner who might be a first round pick. They, you know, they they kind of have one of those MAC rosters where everything's coming together. They won the league last year. They're going to come back. So that's just a small example of even at Toledo, they're like, if we don't have the money raised to keep our best guys. We're going to get raided, and you know the corner is going to go to Michigan State, and the running back is going to go to Wisconsin, and you know it's just sort of the circle of life. So I think probably one of the misnomers of raising money for collectives is for recruits. Certainly, Miami's paying for recruits, and that's not any kind of boogeyman stuff. It's just what they're doing. Texas A&M, we watched famously in spades and heard Nick talk about it, is paying for recruits. That has proven to be an uncertain business model. It could work, but the early results are tepid. And so what people want to avoid is what happened to Pitt last year, where Jordan Addison rolls out in uh, early May. What they want to do is, and that was for more than money, I want to be clear than that. It, you know, it was offense, location, opportunity, et cetera. He's a proven um, quarterback. Making yeah, sure oh, yeah. All, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's, yeah. there's no doubt. But that's the nightmare scenario for a coach, for an athletic director, is – if you have a player who's the best at his position in the country and he leaves you, it's just a, it's, it's a terrible look. It was uh, a, a little bit of the case of Van Dyke at Miami when there was that, you know, 
three-day window where there were all sorts of internet rumblings that he could go to Alabama. If that happened to Miami, that's a crushing blow um, in, in so many ways because your best player, your leader, a guy you've committed a lot of money to says, this place isn't good enough. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to go somewhere we, we recruit against. So I really feel like NIL-wise, the the biggest pressure that, that coaches are under right now is from the big, big blue, blue, blue bloods or the people who really have their collective stuff organized and have their, their money marshaled is that they can't come in and swoop in and take the elite players on their roster. Um, so I think that's the, the first pressure. And then the second is, I remember Ryan Day threw out an $11 million figure six, eight months ago. Like places are looking for like an annual. He was budget. operating triple, he was operating triple A at 11 yeah. million. Right. Yeah. A triple A well, franchise. Think, there, yeah. I've yeah. some more than that. And I think some of that was like, that's how we keep our best players. Right. Yeah. It wasn't like, let's go buy a super team. It was, let's make sure uh, a Mecca doesn't, doesn't bail and go to, you know, fill in the blank school X. Let's make sure Marvin Harrison Jr. is really, really happy here. Um, you know, th- let's, let's not get poached. Let's not give anyone the temptation to come in and swing that. So I really feel like this offseason coaches organizing that, marshalling that, seeing what's realistic, and then coming coming in and, and, and delivering on that has become a, a, a significant added pressure, especially in the last month. We're just transitioning out of it now where the head coaches can't go on the road. But the assistant coaches are on the road. So these head coaches are home without really guys in the building. A lot of the players are gone for kind of their May break, and then they come back. They're coming back right around now. So what are the head coaches doing? They're really dialing in in their local communities through their boosters and such. They're getting on private planes and you know meeting high-profile donors and really trying to make sure that aspect is fortified. There are a number of interesting topics in this, and there are also some philosophical things here. I'll stipulate at the beginning that it is distasteful to fans, except maybe for the fans who would be on the receiving end of a great player moving from one um, power program to an elite super blue blood, as was the or as the case could have been uh, with Van Dyke at Miami, but was not. But the other aspect of this is a little bit of the nature of the beast. And I understand the number of great players that have been produced by the Toledos of the world or you know, teams in the Mountain West or wherever it might be, Sunbelt, great players uh, for sure. But this is part of it sometimes. Guys get a chance to move up. People get a chance to move up. When you're in minor league baseball, you play well, you move up. Uh, when you are in broadcasting, you're working in Columbus, Georgia, and Flint, Michigan, and you get a chance to move up and you go. And I don't. nobody begrudges that. And in some aspects, it's the same thing in college football. A guy goes and plays great. At Miami, Ohio, he gets a chance to go to Cincinnati. He goes and plays well, or he gets a chance to go to Ohio State or wherever it might be. And I use Cincinnati, obviously, with the case of Ivan Pace as the example. So there's a level of this or an aspect of this that doesn't really bother me. Um, I, I understand the distastefulness of actively recruiting and trying to poach off another team's roster. 
But for the players, the opportunity to move up, they want to play two more years and they want a, um, a better training table. Uh, we talked a lot about the defensive back at TCU last year. They called him uh, Fig Newton, who um, moved from Louisiana to TCU and was overwhelmed by the, by the support that the athletes got. We talked about it on this podcast. That's not uh, casting aspersions at Louisiana. They didn't have the resources to do the same things that TCU could do. So when a player gets an opportunity to do that and also gets an opportunity to perhaps make more money under this current system, I have a hard time saying that the sky's falling and college football's not working because what that does is it opens the door for someone else to move into that situation and perhaps improve himself. Because the coaches, and this, again, is not a criticism, they're also working to make their careers, their career path the best it can be to move up. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with moving from the MAC to the SEC or the MAC to the Big Ten or the Sun Belt uh, to the Big 12. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. But I do agree that probably some type of framework would be best and that some type of collective bargaining uh, with the players and some type of profit sharing with the players would probably alleviate some of the need for the coaches to constantly be fundraising because we'd prefer them to coach than to fundraise. But when you say that, Pete, when you say that, coaches, and, and I've heard the same things, there is certainly a self-serving interest to the coach. I don't want to fundraise. I want the players, but I'd rather not fundraise. And then it comes back to the old thing, who are you really saying this for? And you know, so this is a complex issue, and I think it's only solved long-term over the next you know, five to seven years or so with some type of negotiation, collective bargaining, trade association, which will grant some type of... Uh, equity, but also allow players to move from the MAC to the SEC. Maybe you buy out a contract. I mean, you know, that, that's, the, that's the way it works in some professional sports now. You want, you want a player, he's under contract, uh, you buy it out. Maybe, I know not from one major league team to another, but if um, I'll use uh, a world that I'm uh, more familiar with now than I was, you're in the world of minor league independent baseball. Uh, either an affiliate team or another team wants that player. If they can't make a trade, they buy the contract. That's the way it goes. And, you know, maybe, maybe something like that is what we, uh, the conclusion we arrive at in college football over the next few years. Well, that's what Chris Davis keeps raking, so he gets that chance to, uh, to, to, to <laughs> roll hope. on up. <laughs> Let's Let's well, hope. there is really something fundamentally American about what you just said, right? Opportunity begats opportunity. Opportunity begats exposure. It oper- in, in, I, I think the, the Louisiana TCU example is, uh, is perfect. Look, Louisiana is a proud program, and they've produced a lot of winners, and they've produced a lot of great players. They are not, with their $2 million a year from their Sunbelt TV deal, going to have the same things available as a Big 12 TV contract that's given guys 25 million, right? It's just it's just very basic uh, it's very basic math that as you move up opportunity is going to uh, is going to continue to be available to these guys. So the idea of collective bargaining and unionization makes a lot of sense and I agree with it. The execution of it is where it's going to get really really muddy. And if there was an easy way for this to be executed or a simple way or a pain-free way, um, I think it would have been done by now. But the problem with the business model is that really 
one sport, but you could save one and a half if you have basketball at some places, fund every other sport, which has always been a completely nonsensical business model that's been unsustainable. And I do think if football and basketball, for example, end up under some kind of unionization model, then they have to be removed from everything else. And then everything else is going to sort of wilt or right size or and, and maybe it will just common sense gather where Boston College, because I live up here, I'm just using them as an example, isn't playing tennis at Miami, Clemson, or Georgia Tech. They're playing Stonehill, UMass, and Rhode Island. Or, you know, you go down to Southern California, for example, where UCLA and USC will start playing Long Beach, and they'll start playing Pacific and UNLV in their non-revenue sports, the volleyballs and the water polos, as opposed to, you know, road trips to Indiana, Penn State, Minnesota, etc. So, there's just like, I don't, I look, people a lot smarter than me are going to have to figure this out. But what I have figured out is there's no easy way to do it or it would have been done by now. Okay, let's, uh, we've pontificated. So let's say we're going into the 2023 season. As we go into the 2028 season. Five years from now, I've got, if you can think of another category, go ahead. I'm thinking player acquisition, compensation, playoff. Those, those three things, 2028, what, is, what does player acquisition and player movement look like in five years? So acquisition in five years, I'm guessing now, and this is just a guess. Can, can, I, can I hit you? The reason I said acquisition yeah. is this is if we have a structure and if we are collective bargaining, you remember, well, you probably don't. I'm a little older than you, not as much as I, uh, probably older than I'd like to admit, more so than you. But remember the old territorial draft that the NBA yeah. used to have? And this is before our time. I mean, you and I were barely born, if, if born. But you used to be able to draft guys, you know, in your, in your region. I wonder if you come up with some model like that. And I wonder if it's less recruiting if you have collective bargaining and everything and more and more some type of draft. I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting notion. I think to get a draft becomes a pretty, you know, the the power to for a draft race would have to so distance themselves from anyone else. And then you would think they and, and they're started to. Like if you look at the numbers, <laughs> yeah. and we've I've, we've called it I've called it in print we've called it in this podcast the power two for a while mm-hmm. because with all due respect to Mike Resco that's just that's just the fault lines that have uh, that have emerged in the in the sport so to answer the question what does it look like in twenty twenty eight I think the power two are ultimately going to determine it and that's why a lot of people if you talk to folks in the SEC and around college athletics are really happy with the early, early results of Tony Petiti as the Big Ten commissioner. Because the Big Ten commissioner and the SEC commissioner are the two most powerful people in sports inherently, because that's where the money follows. And they are going to have to be the vanguards and the leaders of the sport pushing forward. I hope and wish Charlie Baker the best, but Mark Emmert has so uh, just relegated the irrelevancy of the NCAA presidency that I'll believe that position to be relevant again when I see it. Because I haven't seen one pulse or heartbeat from that position in the last 10 years. So if you if you go forward, I think a reasonable part of acquisition is going to be this. That 
these TV contracts, which are which are obviously set now, the Big Tens starts in this upcoming season, and it's going to be, I believe, for seven years. And then the SECs uh, is with ESPN, I believe, through 2034. Um, and I think the ACC is 36. So I think at some point, if it's collectively bargained and unionized, Let's just say for round numbers, because I'm not good at math. I certainly don't want to drag you in the drag you in with me as being bad at math. But I went to Syracuse; they don't teach math there. And uh, say they're 100. Every school is getting 100 million dollars a year, right? Which is which are some like estimates of the Big Ten. Although those might have been overstated now with a, with a mm-hmm. second glance. But let's just use a round number. Let's say Wisconsin is getting 100 million dollars. At some point, if there's collective bargaining and if there's player compensation. Let's just say 15% of that gets directed to the players, right? So that is, to use nice, nice soft round numbers for, uh, for, for the guy who only took basic stats in college, um, that is $15 million. And I'm taking my calculator out here. That is one more zero, Pete, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you divide that by 85. Yeah. Now, again, it's going to be more complex. Basketball is going to be involved. There's Title mm-hmm. IX issues that are still real and all this. But we're just looking for, like, linear, what could it look like? Divide that by 85. That would mean that each scholarship player would get $176,000. That honestly sounds high. Just, you know, does the backup right guard, even at Wisconsin, where they like their guards, does he deserve that much money? I don't know. But that just let's just say instead of 15%, it's 10%. And then you divide that, there's a lot of zeros, um, by 85. That is the the theory to me where, you know, every player ends up with a $50,000, $75,000 stipend, salary, you know, and then maybe it's 15 for, uh, 13 for men's basketball, 13 for women's basketball, and all that gets chopped up were, were the the players playing in the highest grossing grossing revenue sports are receiving some cut of it. Could only be five percent. That's still for a vast majority of college athletes. Fifty thousand dollars is probably more than they're worth when if, you, when you go through those when you go through this. So anyway, I I just think there'll be some formula or metric of baseline pay. And then there'll be NIL on top of it for Caleb Williams, who deserves every soft drink, carbonated water, um, you know, commercial and endorsement that he gets because he's the best player in the sport and the biggest market in the sport. So all that stuff becomes an additive and it doesn't become just sort of this like vis-a-vis pay for play. So anyway, that's my idea of how acquisition happens and how those two separate from everyone else. The um, the number that you cited is not that much higher. Would you say one hundred seventy six thousand is not that much higher than some of the studies that some athletic directors have had performed internally on what they spend on per each player when you include everything, not handing them a check, but when you consider um, full cost of attendance, training table access to trainers, access to tutors, everything. When you when you make it a comprehensive evaluation of what's invested, it's not that much different. The one thing I would say at the risk of taking us way down a rabbit hole is that if you do that uh, and take it outside of just the revenue-generating sports and across the board, 
don't you open yourself up yet again to unfair restrictions of what players are are entitled to. Now, if it's bargained, that's different. But if you try to impose this unilaterally, then you're going to impose you're going to run afoul of the unfair restrictions again and they've continually you've mentioned the ineffectiveness of the ncaa and one of those one of the reasons they've been most ineffectual is because they get their tails kicked in court every time in a in an era in which two sides of the aisle can't agree on anything and often choose to disagree simply because the other side believes one thing supreme court case went nine zero against the NCAA, which is why we're uh, in the situation that we're in right now. So it's probably going to have to be bargained. Um, last thing about this. And then Can I just chime in on the legal thing, yeah. Reese, real fast? Yes. So yes. this was uh, a, a week ago. Um, Donald Remy, who's the former chief legal officer of the NCAA, who was the, the loser of all of those cases. He was the, the head of the NCAA's legal as they just got pounded in court for a decade. I mean, he was it, the it Washington... Was like, he was the Washington Generals. Yeah. yeah, no, Washington Generals are for us real old school aficionados of great old TV. He was Hamilton Berger, and the players were always represented by Perry Mason. He, he <laughs> always he always lost. He lost every case. Okay, so please continue. He got two point four million in severance in twenty twenty one, and if anything sums up the NCA's impotence, it's that the biggest loser gets a $2.5 million pat on the tail out. I mean, that, to me, just sums up the NCAA's incompetence so perfectly. And if you need to encapsulate the Mark Emmer era in a fortune cookie, that's what it would be. A lot of coaches get paid after they lose, too, big time. Paid sure. To go away. <laughs> you know sure. I mean, so it, that, that, too, is that too is part of the system, and you have to live up to the contract, man. You know, if you sign the contract and the guy doesn't perform it the same way, now I don't know about, about Remy's severance pay, but as far as the coaches go. is there, How big will the playoff be? And I'll give you a little more of a runway here because in five it'll probably be 12 because these things move yeah. slowly. Seven years before that, what, what size will the playoff be, 16? So I want to say um, – so the playoff is going to jump in in the next two years, and they're figuring out the TV deals for that right now. And then I want to say it was an eight-year agreement. Um, I'd have to go look it up. They've sort of announced what it's going to be for the next iteration, and the length of that just isn't off the – I don't have off the top of my head. Yeah, but things could change, Pete. We've oh, we know. That. They, You're they getting could. to predict here. You don't have yes. to be bound No, I know. I just the, want to, like, give people the, the – contract. The, um, I don't yeah, I don't know if that the answer to that has uh, has has emerged yet. I think it has. But I think we're at 12. It was so hard to get to 12, Reese. Um and remember the the reason that they stuck on 12 was to give the SEC some competitive advantages. Do, do you remember how they kind of how they kind of ended up there? Because the SEC wanted to be able to sort of keep its it, they they didn't want they weren't willing to give up what they already had, which is the potential for the number of at-large bids. Correct. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so that was where things didn't go to – why things didn't go to 16 because it could have, like, lessened the SEC's impact. And let's face it, the SEC, deservedly so, is the alpha in these conversations. So I would think whatever size the playoff becomes, that the SEC leads the way. And if the Big Ten does a little more winning, um, you know, they could certainly have a bigger say in that. But I think that's where – I think we're at 12 for a little while. I think we end up at 16. 
you know, by that in that 2035 neighborhood. But I don't think we end up there in 2030. You know, scheduling is something that that comes up because of the contracts that have been signed and the uh, revenues uh, lost associated potential revenue loss associated with buying out contracts that are there. But one of the things that I think the athletic departments are going to have to become accustomed to and the committee challenge to the committee here with the 12 team playoff is there has to be an even more strenuous evaluation based on who did you play? You've got to win some of the games. No question about that. But Teams worried about, well, if like in the SEC, for instance, if we go to a nine-game schedule, I already have uh, two Power Fives scheduled for the, you know, the next several years. Or if not, two Power Fives, a big-time Power Five, and a strong uh, team from, you know, from the American or whatever, and I'm only playing one quote-unquote guarantee game. You're going to have nine and three and maybe even eight and four teams in there. And if some of those eight uh, – those eight wins are against good opponents and you lost some close games and you played everybody, you know, you got to get in, man. I mean, you have to be evaluated like that for, for the entire history of evaluating champions in college football. Mm -hmm. There's been this Holy grail of being undefeated and that should carry some weight because no matter what your schedule is at your level, it is difficult not to, not to get clipped, you know, not to step on a banana peel somewhere. So that should carry some weight. But what should carry more weight is if you went out and you played nine conference games and you played two more power fives or two more really difficult games and you got clipped three times, you know, as long as you didn't get beat by 50 a couple times or something like that, then that should that should be enough to get you in. And I think once that happens, there's going to be less reluctance um, on the side of the people who are worried about making their schedules too hard because Honestly, the players don't want to play in weak games. The coaches don't really want to coach in them, though some of them are concerned about bowl eligibility and things of that nature. And the, most importantly, the fans and TV, they don't want to see those games. They want to see good games, top-level competition, play against each other. The season is so short, and even with the 12-game schedule and you know, potentially up to 15 or 16 you know, when, the, when the playoff comes around, that's still a relatively uh, few number of games, and you want to play the you want to play the big ones. The players enjoy it, fans enjoy it, the coaches enjoy it for the most part, um, and that's that's what it should be. And you know, if that leaves some out in the cold, I mean, I I get it, but to me, this is a competitive enterprise uh, and commerce and in entertainment and you got to put the best product out there the best product is uh you know is alabama playing notre dame and um and ohio state and that maybe hurts troy well troy's got to find another way you know i mean it's just kind of they already have to find another way so uh, i i think that's what we're going to wind up with but it's going to take some adjustments because of that holy grail of having the 12 and 0 or 11 and 1 record and otherwise you're doomed. You're not going to be doomed when you get to 12 and certainly once we get to 16, which I think will come before the end of the contract. Um, you're not going to be doomed with three losses. You're going to be able to play. Can I make a bold prediction? Yes. That bowl eligibility standards as we know them will disappear in the next two years. Because 
there needs to be incentivization. It's sort of like the Mississippi State factor, the places that like really good seasons historically for Mississippi State are winning seasons. And there's going to be in bowl seasons and coaches are going to start getting clipped if especially if the SEC goes to non-conference games here, which I do think through gritted teeth they kind of will. Um, I just think Sankey is sort of been passive with his people, but I think he's going to push that forward if you if you read through the lines of his comments. I, but I do think some of that will come with some manipulation of the arbitrary, you know, six and six gets you to a bowl, right? I think COVID was a little bit of a test case for that, right? I mean, you could have got you could have got twelve dudes in pennies out in a parking lot in South Boston, they would have thrown them in a bowl game during COVID, and people still watched. So, um, I really feel like if you're going to make these schools, because I know that's a concern for the have-nots in the SEC. If you talk to the ads there. Um, and the coaches, quite frankly, who you know need bowl appearances to keep going, they need the practices, they they need the the, the recruiting juice from it. And the bowls want a five and seven SEC team over a uh, ten and two Sun Belt team or whatever it is. They just do. They they rate. That's just it's pure economics. The pure economics are going to drive that. Bowl games are exhibition games. That's what they started as. You know, hundred plus years ago. They, they are exhibition games. Back then, they were designed to draw tourists to an area. And, oh, by the way, there's going to be a football game. And then we morphed them into championship contests. And then we morphed them into validations of the season. But as the playoff has come into play, the BCS first, then the playoff, and now the expanded playoff, they are back to their original intent, the ones outside the playoff structure. They're exhibition games. They're like NFL preseason games. They're fun. It's great to see football, and they mean different things to different teams, but it shouldn't be viewed as some type of validation at the end of the season if you're not in the playoff. It should be viewed as an opportunity to play football. The cynics say, why would you play in that game? I've always operated under the assumption if you are a football player, you probably enjoy playing the sport. There are also bonds that are built with your teammates that you want to go out there one more time with them. There can be internal motivation for certain goals that maybe you want to finish the right way, that there's some type of intrinsic value to that for you. And that that's okay. And for someone else who might have six opt-outs, well, that's an opportunity for them to get a look at guys who might contribute next year or get a look at guys that they want to push toward the portal, give them, you know, give them an out there. And the other thing I believe is that anyone who's on the roster shouldn't count against your red shirt. If you have an early enrollee that comes in and is there for bowl practice and he wants to play in the independence bowl and you want to have a look at him for a few snaps, run him out there, man. You know, who cares? And it shouldn't impact the eligibility and it's not going to impact our enjoyment of the games because we're watching football. It's like a lot of these, uh, like a lot of the leagues, the spring football leagues. It's great. The spring professional leagues. It's great if they have crowds. But really what this is, is television program for the entertainment of football fans. That's what bowl games are. They're, they're television, the ones outside the playoff structure, I mean. They're television program for the enjoyment of football fans and hopefully the enjoyment of the players who are going out and getting to play the game that they love and if they don't want to or they feel like it's putting them at undue risk then opt out go ahead someone else will play because someone wants to play guaranteed 
And, you know, that's that's the way I look at, at the bowl games now. Yeah, no, I think that's all uh, that's all fair. And, you know, there'll be an even steeper line of demarcation. Now, I think it's preposterous that the bowl system is going to be woven through the playoff. Right. I so just do think, I. Play yeah, home I just, home field. Th- yeah. Those games should be home field. Home field yeah. or just take the money yourself. Like why are you why are you subletting your your best content? It, it just it just to me that makes no sense. And they've started to do it a little bit with your Indianapolis final here and there, but college football being so wed to tradition has held it back. And the bowl system to me epitomizes that. Now look, I'm a bowl guy. I watch bowls. You and I Reese, sit around and watch, you know, <laughs> the Independence Bowl and text each other. And like I, I I watch them all. I enjoy them. They're great content. They do unbelievable numbers. They're great business for ESPN and others who run them. So I'm not anti bowl in in any way. I'm just like pro smart business for college athletics as it's as it's pushing forward here. And when these dudes make the playoff, they don't care that there's some guy in a yellow jacket greeting them at the bus. Like, they just don't care. Like, this is a cold-blooded billion-dollar business. We just need to cut some of the sentimentality crap out of it and just move on. Well, I, I, I like the nostalgia sure. and the sentimentality because I do think that's what separates it from the NFL. And I I can hear some of our listeners. We're going to get the reaction from them. You know, you guys are trying to make it into a junior NFL it's not that I like the pageantry, the tradition, uh, you know, seeing Ralphie run out, seeing Bevo, uh, you know, the hearing bands. the various chants that sure. mean things. That's what separates it. And that's what connects people to it. And that is worth preserving. But I think my thing with the bowls not being, especially in the early rounds, the new early rounds of the expanded playoff. I feel as if I'm sticking up for the fans and the atmosphere and some of that nostalgia because sooner or later, you either you run out of resources to make all of these trips. And it's in many cases, it's financial, but in other cases, it's time. There, there are people out there who are huge Georgia fans who over the next few years when Georgia makes the playoff every year – and they're going to, there, it's going to be the, the first round game someplace or you know their first game, their quarterfinal game at some neutral location. On a Thursday night. Well, on a Thursday night or whatever, let's, let's see if they win. If they win, we'll go to the next one. And then before long, it's going to be, well, if they go to the championship game. Or if it's closer and an easier trip, we'll go to the semifinals, but not the championship game. That's my, I feel as if I'm sticking up for the fans there. If you want to keep the bowls integrated in the semifinals and the final, that seems to have, you know, well, the finals, a neutral side, but you know, you get the point. I, that's probably still a tenable solution. But the quarterfinals, man, you know, you have those first games, first round games on campus. The next round should be on campus too. And I've been told by a number of people, you know, Get off that horse. It's already out of the barn. You know, it's gone. You're not going to convince them. Doesn't, it's not going to stop me from saying it because I don't think it's good for the fans. Is I think your horse it's better common sense? Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's better for the fans if those games were played on campus. And you know what? It's also better for the players. Unless, of course, you go to the uh, 
Lexington baseball regional and there's a country music festival in town and there are no hotel rooms within an hour of Lexington so you're staying in the dorms at at Kentucky but I digress anyway but I think they'll probably alleviate that in football did you see that Pete I did not was that baseball yeah yeah, baseball regional, uh, Kentucky got a regional. There's a country music festival or something close by, and every hotel room is booked solid. Wow. So I guess they're all they're all in the dorms. <laughs> so, that is that is think? suboptimal. That is not the student yeah, athlete experience that you uh, that that you that you want. Oof, you think uh, you think some of those teams are thinking. You couldn't have sent us to Winston-Salem or, or even Conway. Could have sent us to the Conway Regional. We stayed in the hotel and still we're going in the dorms. Although I'm sure the dorms at Kentucky are, are very nice. Um, let's hit a couple of other topics here. just stay in Cincinnati at here. that point, right? Yeah. I, well, I don't know. I, you'd probably rather be close. Anyway, yeah. we've, we've touched on this a little bit. Uh, some of the, you threw out some topics on text or a pod crew that I thought were thought were interesting. Let's uh, let's start with the one that you listed last because I think it's most pertinent at the moment. What's the path for the Pac-12's survival? I mean, it, I mean, it's just it's as simple as a television contract strong enough to keep Oregon and Washington, isn't it? I think that's a that's a that's a strong baseline, and I really think it's a television contract strong enough to ensure that Oregon and Washington are going to grant their rights. And the mm-hmm. longer this drags on, like the conversation we're having now in late May, Reese, isn't all that different than the conversation we would have had four or five months ago. Like mm-hmm. the Pac-12 is still at a crossroads. The Pac-12 still needs a robust enough television contract to ensure its survival. Like it, it is very much at a crossroads for survival, at least survival in a form that it's recognizable. Now, whether or not that television contract is there is, is I think it's fair to say, is uncertain at this point. The Pac-12 and George Klyovkov has done very little, both of those entities have done very little to convince people that it's there. They, there is an aura of uncertainty that stems from either the Pac-12's limited comments or, or lack of uh, conversation about this. And so, what has happened is that league in itself has gone a little bit in the fetal position. Do you see the, the Washington State release the other day mm-hmm. where some of the errors of Larry Scott bubbled up? And then that, that school that obviously is one of the least resourced in the Power Five is, uh, you know, entering some austerity measures uh, because of just, you know, financial things. There was also some errors at Washington State that led them down that road, too, that were, that were a little bit lost in there. But right now, the Pac-12 needs a viable television contract. And if you talk to people in the industry, and I've written this months ago and not a ton has changed, there aren't a lot of available pots of money. Also, television windows, if you're going to be on conventional television, for the Pac-12. So I'm not a fatalist that says that it's over for the Pac-12, but I am among the, the many curious who are wondering what path they take to move forward. And, and I think... It's fair at this point to ponder whether there's a viable one or not. I think that only a few of the Pac-12 programs will be in the upper echelon of the sport once the next wave comes around, whether you want to call it realignment or you know break off and do their own thing from a business model. And that, that's why this 
television contract is important. And the television contract that the ACC has with us, with ESPN, the grant of rights uh, within that contract, each ACC school uh, grants their rights to the conference uh, for the foreseeable future until 2035, 2036, something like that. Has the ACC and has had many, uh, many people looking at a way out. Tied into a couple of the topics you have there, ACC at a crossroads and SEC, what's the incentive to grow? I would say those two things are married. The ACC, I think, is at a crossroads because of the revenue. And the SEC's incentive to grow, to me, lies almost exclusively with luring, I would say, North Carolina and Virginia, uh, potentially Virginia Tech. Now, Florida State wants to come in. They, they would be a good addition. But that They've been subtle about that. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't, that doesn't expand the footprint that much. North Carolina, Virginia, or Virginia Tech puts them in, in different markets. That's the incentive for the SEC to grow, and I think that is uh, intertwined with the ACC at a crossroads. Fair? Yes, but don't forget um, that, to me, the most underreported and, and underrated aspect of potential Power 2 expansion is the battle for North Carolina and Virginia, Reese, because they're contiguous to both leagues, and they have massive, massive markets. Now, you could argue that North Carolina and Virginia have massively underachieved considering how much talent is in a, you know, a radius of those of those places. If you go if you draw uh, you know, North Carolina could easily be Clemson if they had had the right coach and leadership at some point. There's just no there's too much talent there. And so for the SEC to grow and to grow markets and for its network to be more profitable and to open up you know, viable recruiting areas even further for its programs, they would want to build up from South Carolina to North Carolina and Virginia. If you look at the SEC, they've been very intentional about contiguous states. That's one of those one of those terms you only hear in college athletic expansion, contiguous states. But it's also contiguous states for the Big Ten. People around the Big Ten will always tell you that Jim Delaney's dream was to add North Carolina. He's from New Jersey. He mm-hmm. played at North Carolina, and it's mm-hmm. contiguous down from Maryland to go to Virginia and North Carolina. Now, it... From a competitive standpoint, it makes zero sense because Clemson and Florida State historically have been exponentially on different moons than those programs. I mean, Clemson made six straight college football playoffs uh, within the last decade. It seems like long ago, but within the last decade, Florida State won a national title. Uh, Virginia and North Carolina haven't sniffed that neighborhood. Like, they haven't even been close to it. But um, college football expansion doesn't make much sense. So... I've long held the joke that in Birmingham, they have their periscopes up and they're looking at suburban Chicago. And in suburban Chicago, they have their periscopes up and they're looking at Birmingham. <laughs> and it's spy versus spy. And the, 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 what they are wondering is the positioning for North Carolina and Virginia, which if you talk to people at Clemson and Florida State, they feel like that's crazy. But that's, that's the reality. And that is the first battle lines. If there were draft picks for available schools, Notre Dame would be the the Wemby, right? They would be the yeah, you know yeah. the, the they just the hands down once a generation prodigy draft pick, and then from there, I think it would surprise people that it would probably go North Carolina, Virginia. Um, now, the the geography of Oregon, Washington are tricky. USC does not want those schools to come in there. They USC and UCLA want to keep the LA market to themselves 
which is one of many reasons why that didn't work um, when they when Kevin Warren tried to make a late play, you know, via Amazon to add those two. Um, but it, and also the Big Ten presidents didn't have a ton of desire. So anyway, how does this unfold with with sort of this race for Virginia and North Carolina? Race? Like, I'm not sure because it all goes through the grant of rights. And as, as I said earlier in the podcast, I didn't take a lot of math classes. I took even less law classes. So tr- me trying to determine what that grant of rights reads and how dissolving can go, all I know is it will be a mess and the lawyers will make a lot of money, right? They'll, they'll be Donald Remy-esque uh, payouts <laughs> for, for you know, uh, <laughs> any, any three-name law firm with an ampersand in it. That, that gets involved in uh, that gets involved in that, but breaking away from the ACC comes with a risk. There's a hundred million dollar plus exit fee combined with the fact that you still don't own your own rights. And so, much like all of college sports now, it seems like it's in the hands of judges or Congress. Your future as an athletic department and who can broadcast your games would be in the hands of judges or Congress. To me, college presidents are risk averse. Right, and we're going to talk about Colorado here in a minute. It's the reason why I don't think Colorado is going to leave until it sees what the Pac-12 number is, because ultimately college presidents operate in not wanting to mess up in college athletics. Right? There's only almost downside. It's the thing they know the least about, and it's the highest visibility that can get them in the most trouble publicly. So if you pull your you pull your school out of the ACC. And you lose some court cases and you don't ha- you don't own your rights and you're off on some island. That is like a potential meltdown scenario. So it's all fairly complex what happens next. And I think the last point I'll make on the ACC is they're sort of at a, a, an existential question. They, they did some minimal revenue sharing with postseason stuff that passed uh, last week. The, the bigger question that's being asked there now, Reese, is... Do they do they come to a conclusion where there are uh, there's a base revenue sharing where BC, Pitt, Clemson, Florida State, Miami all make twenty five million, and then the rest is in a pot that gets divided up between both winning and your media value, and that that notion brings up two things. It's does that allow you to survive because the Clemson, Florida states who are clearly unhappy can make somewhere in the neighborhood of the money of South Carolina and Florida? Or does it divide you apart like it did with the Big 12 when Texas and Oklahoma are there? So it's like it's a little bit of a an existential question that nobody has an answer to. Does unequal revenue keep you tied together or does it eventually break you apart? The answer is maybe both, actually. But is that the best way for the ACC to survive in some form in the short term? Hey, we've we've covered a lot of business ground here, and our great producers Sarah and Taylor are are up against a time limit here. So now we're going to have fun on the way out. I'm All giving right. you a fifteen dollar collective. Our friends at the Players Lounge on Twitter did this first and thought it was uh, pretty good. Build a lineup for fifteen bucks. Now, Sarah, do you do you want to show this to Pete? Do you have a graphic, or is this like a post production graphic? I got it up. You've got we're it up. Good. Oh yeah. Okay. All right, so here, here's, who I, here's who I've drafted. It's going to come as no surprise to you that I'm taking the, and, and I hope the people watching on YouTube can see the graphic. But you, I'll give you the quarterbacks. Caleb Williams is five bucks. Drake Mays, four. Bo Nix is three. Jaden Daniels of LSU is two. And Joe Milton at Tennessee is the $1 quarterback. So I'm take, it works like that. You spend a maximum of 15 bucks. 
So I'm going Drake May at quarterback for four bucks. One buck, I'm taking Southern Mississippi's Frank Gore Jr., who set a bowl record uh, running for 328 or 29 yards in Southern Mississippi's bowl games, and he's a threat out of the backfield to catch the ball, and he was a high school quarterback, so he can throw the ball and trick plays for me. So I'm, I'm getting a real bargain with Frank Gore at $1. For $5, my big ticket item is Marvin Harrison Jr., because I want Drake May and Marvin Harrison Jr. and dare anybody to stop me. From there, I'm going to go with Jaheim Bell, who just left South Carolina to go to Florida State. I think he's about to have a big year. It's going to be a, a bargain pick at tight end for three bucks. That leaves me with $2, and I could take the LSU defense for $1 or the Clemson defense for two. I'm go- because, I, because I don't want any money burning a hole in my pocket later, I'm just going to take the Clemson defense, even with the losses to the draft. I've got I've got confidence that they'll that they'll put out a, a stout defense once again. So that's my fifteen dollar roster. I've got I've got May, Gore, Harrison, Bell, and the Clemson defense for fifteen bucks. What do you got? All right, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go a little opposite of you. I am going to take the Georgia defense because I believe defense wins championships. And I'm no gonna defense spend- keeps you from losing championships. Offense wins them. You know, fair fair point, but <laughs> okay. um, All right. I think I'm what sorry. Georgia brings back on defense, it, you know, could end up being a historically good defense. So I'm going to take, I'm going to just, I'm going to go straight Pollock, and I'm going to take Brock Bowers for five, and I'm going to take the Georgia defense for five, and then I'm going to, I'm going to spray around my final five bucks. I am going to take Jaden Daniels for two dollars as my quarterback because you want a good dual threat guy who can who can who can earn you some uh, you know who can who can move with your legs and then so that means I have uh, I have three dollars left so I'll take Arian Smith as my wide receiver and uh, I'll take Will Shipley as my tailback and I feel like you aren't going to be able to cover Brock Bowers I think he can run the ball too a little bit and uh, he can even block a little bit so. I'm gonna go. I'm just gonna go straight bulldog because we are uh, we are in the season of the potential bulldog three P. So go ahead and and take a look at our rosters, our fifteen dollar rosters on Twitter, and let us know who you think did a better job with their NIL money. And in the meantime, for all of you boosters of the uh, RD Collective, is this what we want fantasy college football to be? You need to raise some more money so that I get to spend $30 next time instead of $15. Pete, it's been fun, man. Uh, always always great to catch up. We'll do this every week throughout the offseason. Taylor, Sarah, great job getting us together. This has been the ESPN College Game Day podcast. Downloaded it wherever you like to get your podcast and vote for Team RD, led by Drake May and Marvin Harrison Jr. <laughs>